In this episode, I am joined by Lee Brasington, Buddhist meditation teacher and author of the book Right Concentration, a practical guide to the jhanas. We hear how Lee transformed from a self-described pothead to a serious meditation practitioner in his very first retreat. How learning the jhanas from meditation master Ayakema, eight altered states of consciousness brought on by deep meditative concentration radically changed Lee's life direction. We discuss stream entry for non-monastics, why most people underestimate their meditation potential, Lee's controversial take on Western Dharma teachers who claim full awakening, and why the cities, or supernormal powers, are so associated with the practice of jhana. So without further ado, Lee Brasington. So Lee, you were born in 1949 in Mississippi. I'm from the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. And you graduated Rhodes College in 1971 with a Bachelor of Arts with honors in mathematics, Phi Beta Kappa. How did you first become interested in meditation? So the first thing was at Rhodes College. Uh, my freshman year, the Phi Beta Kappa chapter, well, every year they would invite someone to come and speak. And the person they invited was Houston Smith, who was entitled uh, The Religions of Man. It's been republished under, uh, I believe, The World's Religions. And he talked about Buddhism and about meditation there, and I found it interesting. But it was interesting in a very academic setting. You know, uh, I, I wasn't thinking about doing anything like that myself. And then in 1984, I went running one day in a very bad mood and screwed up my knees. I was in good shape because I'd been swimming, but I hadn't been running in six months, and uh, I overdid it. That was January, and for New Year's, I went back friends from college, and uh, one of them was a chiropractor and fixed my knees. They were out of place. The other, one of the other friends uh, handed me a book by Trumpa entitled Shambhala and said, read this book, and so okay, I read the book. And uh, it was very interesting. And when I finished, uh, Ed said to me, well, now you got to start meditating. And I was like, that's so boring. He said, what did Trump tell you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm beginning to think a little bit about meditation, but not really doing much. I tried a little bit on my own, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And then I was seeing a massage therapist who was a student of Ruth Denison. And she said, you should go on a meditation retreat, yes, because that's what I said to people that asked me stuff like that. And then there was a retreat, and she told me about it. And since I was unemployed, off I went. And it was Ayakema who became my primary teacher. And it was, well, it was life-changing. At the time, I was a real pothead. I was getting stoned week and had been for like 14 years. And so I go on this retreat, and when I come back, I don't smoke pot anymore. It was like, well, if meditation can do that, what else can it do? And uh, so I began actually pursuing it somewhat seriously. Uh, and then three years later, I was on a retreat in southern Thailand. Stumbled into the first jhana, and it was like, all right, something really interesting is going on. And then two years after that, I reconnected with Ayakema, and that's when my practice really took off. Were you going into that retreat intending to give up part? I went into that retreat intending to find out about this meditation stuff that several people were telling me would be good for me. 
I was completely uninterested in Buddhism as a religion. Uh, I basically, I'd put all religions in the category of superstition by that point. You know, when they are, Daniel and the Lion's Den, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, maybe that's, they were all the same to me. So I just want to know about the meditation stuff. And Ayakema said, you don't have to believe anything. Uh, she said, the Buddha said, Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Well, with a scientific-minded background, I was like, okay, yeah, okay, uh, I'll come and see for myself. And so it was. I went on the retreat curious about meditation, and what I found was meditation, and also there was this other stuff that actually nothing to believe, but seemed kind of useful. She said that we are confused enough already. We do not need to ingest anything else to make us more confused in relationship to the fifth precept. And I had to admit that made sense to me. And since I always have wanted to know what the heck is going on, uh, that was what enabled me to stop smoking pot and then pursue the meditation to see if I could figure out what the heck is going on. Ah, so you decided to stop because you wanted to investigate meditation further. It wasn't that you did this retreat and then suddenly the desire to smoke was gone. No, that is. So I had tried to give it up. Oh, let's see. Uh, probably about a year earlier. And, you know, it, it just didn't work. Uh, and so I sort of was smoking more and enjoying it less. But. I was still hooked on it, <clears throat> but I went on the retreat to find out about meditation. And as a side effect, I was able to tap into the desire to give it up and actually give it up. So you're talking there about Aya Kema, the German-born Buddhist meditation teacher. And she was, she's got quite a remarkable, remarkable story, very remarkable woman. Oh, yes. Can you tell us a bit about Aya Kema um, and you know, what it was like studying with her? Because you went on from that, those starting points to become... Her senior student in the U.S., isn't that right? Yes. She was your favorite Jewish grandmother, and she was very stern and German. Uh, it was quite a remarkable combination. We lost a lot of really, really amazing people in the Holocaust. But uh, very much when you were on her retreat, if you wanted to have a good retreat, you did what she told you to do. Uh, and yet she had this beautiful way of doing metta that was really very touching and deep. Uh, she was sweet and stern both um, and very clear. That was probably the most striking thing was her clarity. Um, I think if you talk to anyone that was a student of hers, they're going to talk about her clarity. She put out the instructions and her understanding of what the Buddha said in a very, very clear way that was very easy to understand. Uh, she said to me at one point, the reason you have such good success with this practice is you do what you're. And so growing up as a Presbyterian preacher's kid in Mississippi, I got taught very early. It was good if I did what I was told to do. And so I was able to do that with Ayakema. And since what she was telling me to do was actually very, very useful, it worked really well. Can you give an example of the sort of detail that a lot of people might gloss or, you know, do a little bit their own way that you would have followed more precisely that, that you think could have been crucial to your development there? So the thing that first helped 
was she was a student of Robert Hover, who was a student of Uba Kien. Uba Kien was Gawenka's teacher. And she taught us the body scan. And she did the guided scan. And at, this was day seven, and I was, I was not able to follow my breath. It was just too boring. And suddenly I had something to do. And uh, the way that she did it with the precision and everything else, I got it immediately. And so I'm, my next interview, I asked her, you know, could, could I just do that? And when I finished, uh, I had discovered I could follow my breath. And was that a suitable thing? And she was very much in favor of that. So she was, <clears throat> although she was primarily teaching the breath, she was very open to other methods that worked. I also remember before she taught us the body scan, uh, my first interview, I had discovered that if I just force the exhale a little bit, I could stay with the breath a lot easier. And she was like, no, that's not going to work. By forcing the breath, you're making it a little bit too easy. It's true you don't get distracted. But you're not getting distracted because you have good concentration. You're getting distracted because of the forcing. So don't force the breath. Just go with the natural flow of the breath. And then she said something that I didn't quite understand. She said, uh, if you force the breath, you won't get enough concentration to enter the jhanas. Well, I didn't know what a jhana was, but obviously it was something that needed concentration. But the, the technique of, yeah, just let it be the natural breath and then do learning the body scan and then coming to my breath. That was my primary practice for the next three years. Well, you talked about going to Thailand to study with Ajahn Buddha Dasa. Is that where you first experienced the first jhana, which Ayakema later explained what that was to you? Yes. So I had been just doing a body scan following my breath. I show up at Wat Suan Mok. And at that time, the first 10 days of every month, they had a silent meditation retreat. And what they were teaching was mindfulness of breathing. In particular, if you were to read Buddha Das's book, Mindfulness with Breathing, you would find exactly what was being taught at that retreat. And it was on day four, I, my back, my lower back was starting to kill me. And so I slipped off my seat. Uh, I had this little thin cushion. I slipped off the edge of it. And when I did, it pushed my spine into exactly the right posture so that I wasn't using my muscles to hold myself up. My tailbone was still on the little thin cushion. And it was such a relief that it exploded into the first jhana. And I didn't know it was the first jhana. But I remembered there was a Dutch woman who had asked a question earlier. What do I do with all this joy I get? And so when this happened and the first jhana arose, all this rapture and happiness, my first thought was, oh, I bet that's what that Dutch woman was asking about. And I'm going to sit like this forever. And so uh, I wasn't attempting to do anything. I had no instructions. It just happened upon me simply because of the relief of the pain in my back. And uh, it was yeah, probably 35 to 40 minutes into uh, a meditation session. I was four days into the retreat. I'd gotten well settled and boom, 
up show Sajana. And I was able to re-enter the state once a day for the next few days and then starting twice a day and then the retreat was over. But I was able to continue to it as long as I kept my meditation practice going. You know, some, some listeners might be wondering, what are these jhanas? And that's certainly something we're going to come to. So from, from Thailand, then you went back to Ayakema and you explained this experience to her. What happened next? Well, no, I went, I went out on my trip. This was uh, about a nine-month trip to Australia and Asia. And so I hung around in Thailand for another few weeks, uh, was hanging on one of the aisles of hedonism off the south coast of Thailand, uh, Wat Pangan, uh, sorry, uh, Koh Phangan. And then I went to China and Tibet, and then I went home. And now I was more serious about my meditation practice. Uh, did a retreat with Ruth Dennison down in uh, near Joshua Tree in Southern California. Uh, was hung out at her place for about seven weeks, and you know got got to be fairly serious about my practice. But it was an meditation practice, and I said well, I can get to PT because that's what I was calling my experience. That's what they had told me I was experiencing at Wat Swan Mok. And so I can get to PT. And she said, oh, good. That's the first, John. Here's how you do the second. I had been asking people, okay, I get all this PT. What do I do with it? And nobody told me anything that made any sense. I don't even remember what they said. But with Aya, it was like, yeah, she knew what was going on and what I did next. And that was when really she became my teacher on that retreat. So how did that relationship unfold from that point? Are there any other significant plot points there in your time with Aya Kema? Yeah. So on that second retreat with her, where I was learning the jhanas, I, because I had already very good access to the first one, it was very easy to learn two, three, four, and five by the end of the retreat. And she was back a year later to do a one-week retreat followed immediately by a one-month retreat. And on the one-week retreat, I learned jhana six, seven, and eight and began to get some skill at them. So the first few days of the month long, probably the first week, I was just having fun running them up to eight, running it back down to one. And then I go into an interview and she says, okay, you've got the jhanas good enough now. You need to start doing insight practice after finish your jhanas. And I said, but it, it takes me so long to go up and, and back down and I don't have time. And she said, do them faster. Now, Ayakema was not the type of person you wanted to argue with. It was like, Yes, ma'am, I'll go do them faster. And I started just, and she also told me, just go up to eight. Don't bother to come down. You already know them well enough. Just go up to eight and start doing your insight practice. And she gave me, actually, uh, at that point, uh, to work with Dukkha, and then at a later point to work with arising and passing. And so I went back and started doing what she told me, and the insights were astounding. So that was probably the biggest thing that happened, was getting the fact that the Buddha's teaching sila samadhi panya, the morality, the ethics, and then sit down, concentrate your mind, and use your concentrated mind to investigate reality. That was the real breakthrough. And <clears throat> the whole time she's doing this, this teaching to me, in the evening, she's going through the second discourse in the Long Discourses, the Samanyapala Sutta, which is basically a sutta on the gradual training, laying out Sila Samadhi Panya. So she's 
teaching this in the evening and taking me through these steps. And that was when I came back from that retreat, my friends could see I was different. I had gotten enough insight and enough more dedication to the path at that point that, yeah, this was a real turning point in my life because now the Dharma wasn't just something I was doing. It was a, a real primary part of my life. Well, you're talking there about insight. I'm curious what the initial, your initial insight instructions were. And also models like the, the four-path model uh, from stream entry up to Arhat are used. And I'm wondering if that was the framework that you were operating in at that time. Yes, very much. So the, instru- the first instructions were uh, step through the jhanas and then begin looking for dukkha. And she had pointed out that dukkha is more than just suffering, and unsatisfactoriness and so forth. And the, the problem is I'm a greed type. And greed types don't look for dukkha. Greed types look for you know, pleasure. They cover up the dukkha. So she was smart enough to see that this practice wasn't really working that well. Uh, you know, I'd come back and report what I was doing. And after probably only a couple of days, she switched me to paying attention to arising and passing. So I don't remember the details of the instructions for the dukkha, but for the arising and passing, it was get yourself concentrated and then open up your awareness and just notice anything that arises and passes while you're sitting there until the bell rings. So you'll notice sounds arising and passing. Uh, you'll notice body sensations arising and passing. You'll notice your breaths arising and passing. Uh, thoughts may arise and pass. Uh, just do that till the bell rings. And then, of course, notice the arising and passing of the bell. And then for your walking meditation, a notice arising and passing. Don't pay so much attention to lifting, moving, placing, as is usually taught. But just notice arising and passing visually, tactily, everything you can. When you're eating, notice arising and doing that. When you come back to sit, forget about the arising and passing. Do your jhanas again, then go back to arising and passing. And that was really quite powerful. That's where all the insights came flooding in. Her orientation was very much the progress of insight. So she's basically already taught me the earlier bits and pieces of uh, the uh, basically cause and effect, uh, sila and the jhana. So that had been happening. So cause and condition, I think, is how it's usually translated in uh, progress of insight. So there was karma and dependent origination. And then she just put me to paying attention to arising and passing. And during that retreat, yeah, after a while, the arising and passing turned into dissolution and as she said it doesn't usually go into terror so much as serious disquietude for jhana practitioners jhana practitioners have been in these weird states it buffers the mind you start seeing the world dissolving and it doesn't freak you out nearly as much as people who haven't been practicing the jhanas and then she's tracking me as I discovered later, she's tracking me through the progress of insight. And she def- very definitely was very much in the four path moment. My last chapter of her book, uh, Who is Myself, is a transcription of a talk that she gave on the four path model. 
So if you read that book, you get a transcription of that talk, and we have a recording of that talk. You can find it on Dharma Seed. And it, she just lays out in there her understanding of the four path moments. I know different people feel differently about talking about these sorts of things. So please forgive me if my question is out of line because I'm ignorant as to how, do, how you see these sorts of things, I must confess. But, you know, some people describe the, these insight experiences, such as, say, stream entry, as very dramatic, very uh, watershed. Other people talk of a more gradual kind of experience. Uh, from what you're saying there, it seems like you're having some experiences like a sort of stream entry experience, perhaps on that on that first month retreat. And if so, was it a watershed dramatic moment or was it more of a gradual sort of thing? Yeah. So I'll talk in general rather than my specific experience, because I think that might be more useful. Uh, there's the question of uh, gradual or sudden awakening. And I would say gradually you get enough insights until suddenly you get a breakthrough. And that's very much what Ayakema was teaching. And I would say that's what I have encountered in talking to a number of students, that gradually people get more and more insights. And then there is, to some degree or another, a breakthrough. The breakthrough is an experience without an experiencer would be the way I would put it, that there's enough of a profound experience that as part of that experience is the realization, oh, there was nobody having that experience. It was just an experience. And I have the memory of that experience, but I can't say I had the experience. And this is what Ayokema was pointing to. So I would say that this type of experience would be what she would call stream entry. She had other things that she was checking for in addition. Uh, she describes it as uh, a feeling of uh, a weight being lifted off of you, perhaps losing weight, uh, as a relief, she, she had a number of ways in which she described it. Uh, and so for people who would have an experience like that, she would, in the next interview, be interviewing them and asking them to describe their experience and looking for them saying things like, yeah, uh, there, w there was nobody there. It was such a relief. Tears came. Things like that, possibly. Uh, I would also say that I have met people <coughs> who are completely unable to point to. And yet, if I had to guess, I would say they probably were stream enterers, that something over time had changed them enough so that they would fit pretty much any criteria you wanted to use to measure whether somebody was a stream enterer or not. So it does seem possible that there are Shall we say two paths up the mountain? One has this very dramatic uh, thing that I won't say is unthinkable, although there is unmistakably that it's dramatic. And another just seems over time people get enough depth of understanding through their insights that they would be by pretty much any external criteria other than did you have a dramatic experience, they would be a stream enterer. Uh, it's tricky. <coughs> it's uh, 
difficult as a teacher for me to try and say whether somebody had a stream injury experience or not because they had the experience I didn't. And the, the thing that's really good is whether or not you've had a stream injury experience, the instructions remain the same. It's like a, a milepost. And uh, whether you see the milepost or not, you still go past it. And so, yeah, the instructions remain the same. Don't get caught up on, you know, where exactly you are. If you're still occasionally experiencing dukkha, you've got more work to do because the Buddha said that's all he was teaching was the end of dukkha. And so whether you hit any of the intermediate paths is not really that important. It's about yeah, are you better understanding how the world works so that you can work in harmony with it? And something that's interesting about your your approach to jhanas, which is drawn more from the Pali Suttas as opposed to the Vasudhimaga standards, uh, which uh, f- for those who aren't familiar with that, the Vasudhimaga standards are much more, let's say, almost mythological. In one in a million people can achieve these things. Very much intense. You write in your book, uh, The right, right Concentration, and we will come to Jana's. <laughs> eventually, we're really kicking the can down the road. But it's just very interesting what you're saying. The Jana's themselves are not awakening, but they're a skillful means for concentrating the mind in a way that leads in that direction. They are attainable not only by monastics, but also by serious lay practitioners. And as you're talking about insight there, does your opinion of the Jana's being something that are achievable by people who are not full-time monastic practitioners. Do you also see that in terms of the fourth path model? Is that something that's also achievable in a lay context? Certainly stream entry is achievable in a lay context. I have met a large number of people who seem to be stream enterers. Now, one, stream entry is not well-defined. On my website, I actually have a chart that... uh, is the various interpretations of the four path model. Uh, and so it's not really well defined, but I've met people that, yeah, it seems like something has happened to them. They, they have uh, a way of being that makes me think, okay, they got there. And most of them are lay people. Uh, so certainly stream entry is available to lay people awakening available to lay people well the problem is we don't seem to have very many fully awakened people around uh i would say and of course i'll probably get in trouble for saying this but i will say it nonetheless that of all the people in the west who i've met who claim full awakening none of them are fully awakened right so we don't have uh we don't have enough people that are fully awakened to know whether lay people can get there or not. What we do have, though, is certainly enough lay people who have made serious progress on the past such that their lives are deeply enhanced by the progress they've made. That's good enough for me. Can you unpack that a little bit, that by your estimation you don't consider them to be, and I understand your previous caveat about you never really can know someone else's experience, I'm sure applies here, but what what leads you to say that? So the people that I have had an interaction with one-on-one, in person, who claim to be fully awakened, have all said things that led me to believe that they aren't fully awakened. Uh, it could be complaining about some dukkha in their life. 
And uh, it's interesting when I ask them about that, you know, well, that sounds like dukkha. And the gambling to prove to me that, no, no, this isn't dukkha. Uh, but it, you know, it sounds like they're complaining about something that is, well, less, less than pleasant. Or they say or write something that indicates that, well, okay, so Ayakema was very much in favor of the 10 fetter model of the aspects of the four path model. And so they would, this someone would claim to be fully awakened and then say something that made me think that they really had not overcome the fourth and fifth of the fetters, which are usually given as greed and hatred. Although actually passion for pleasure and ill will would be more accurate translations. There's a interesting sutta. It's the Book two, sutta number one of the Udana. So we, Udana 2.1. Those part of that sutta doesn't have anything to do with uh, the, the verses which follow. But uh, let me bring up the sutta and read you the verses at the end of it. Blissful is detachment for one who is content. For one who has learned Dhamma and who sees. Blissful non-affliction in the world, restraint towards living creatures. Blissful is passionless in the world, the overcoming of sensual desires. But the abolition of the conceit I am, that is truly supreme bliss. Now, I take that to be a description of the four-path model. The first one, detachment, contentment, one who has learned the Dharma and see. Okay, that's stream entry. The overcoming of the wrong view. In other words, one sees the right view. Uh, Learn the Dharma, content. uh, That is, one is content in that one has gained Faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which is described as part of the first path. Detachment. Uh, one is detached from rites and rituals. Uh, it, it seems to fit. Blissful affliction in the world, restraint towards living creatures. That would be the second path. If you found dog poop on your lawn, you would not throw it over into the neighbor's yard to get rid of it. You wouldn't cheat on your spouse for your satisfaction. Both of those would be restraint towards living creatures. Okay. Uh, and then blissful is passionless in the world, the overcoming of sensual desires. Well, that would be third path with the uprooting of passion for pleasure. And then finally, the abolition of the conceit I am. This is truly supreme bliss. This would be overcoming the the last five fetters, the most important one, the conceit, the conceiving of a self. So I would take that as a description of the four path model. And I've, I've heard, I've read writings by people who claim to be awakened that, uh, shall we say, contradicted what I just laid out there. I wouldn't agree with their assessment of themselves as awakened. Mm. Ayakema was diagnosed with breast cancer at 60, and rather than 
undergo treatment, she said she took it as a spur to practice, and I think the words she used were finish the job. Then later, she did have an operation. Nine years later, she had a mastectomy. It was breast cancer. And she came very close to dying there. And she said at the time that she felt she'd finished the job and that she was happy to go, uh, ready to go. She didn't die at that time. She she lived for, I think, five or six more years. But uh, do you consider Ayakema to have finished the job, so to say? Well, as Ayakima said, it takes one to know one, all right? So there, you can know someone isn't fully awakened by observing them doing something that a fully awakened person wouldn't do. But to tell exactly where somebody is, yeah, that's much more difficult. I did see her three weeks before she died. Uh, she was in the hospital. She did get to go home a few days later and died at home three weeks later. But we had an hour and a half or so conversation there, and it was very remarkable. The doctors had told her that at most she had a couple months to live. And when I saw her, she was like, yeah, my body's given out. It's time to go. It was like somebody standing on the train platform saying, well, train's left. I'm on the train and left. Uh, she seemed totally unconcerned about dying. And all she wanted to do was talk about the Dharma and how I should go about teaching the Dharma. It was really inspiring to see somebody that close to death and totally unfazed by it. So was she fully awakened? Well, it takes one to know one. I didn't see anything that made me think she wasn't fully awakened, but I can't say for sure. Fascinating. You've also trained with Tsok Rinpoche, a Nepalese Buddhist tulku in both the Drukpa Kagyu and Nyingma sects. Can you talk a bit about how that relationship came about and what studying with Tsok Rinpoche has entailed? So I was uh, a regular attendee at James Bears's Thursday night sitting group in Berkeley for about a decade. And so one night I go to the group and uh, sit down and James isn't there. Uh, and, you know, I'm a little early. I start meditating. And uh, after a while, I hear some people coming in and uh, I figure it's James and peek an eye open. And yeah, it's James. And he's got a Tibetan with him. It's like, oh, cool. We have a llama. All right. And I go back to meditating and run my jhanas. And, <clears throat> and then it rings a bell. And James introduces Sogni Rinpoche. And Sogni Rinpoche then speaks for about 10 minutes. And in the 10 minutes, he's giving out the so-called pointing out instructions for the Rigpa practice, the primary practice of Sogjen. And when he finishes, he says, and now we're going to do it. And I'm like, there's nobody in this room can do that. But I could. What he had told me to do, I was able to do. And what I saw looking at the world, a very different perspective, a perspective that was, well, not so caught up in the what I was seeing, but just with seeing. And it blew my mind. It was like, wow. And over the course of the rest of the evening, he mentioned that he was going to be in town for the next three nights and he would be uh, giving a, a public uh, 
question and answer meditation and question and answer period at somebody's house in Berkeley. And so I was there the next three nights and I had questions and, you know, just learned enough about the Rigpa practice to feel like, okay, I can do this. So for the next year, my practice was run the jhanas and then step out of jhana number eight and then try and enter the state that he had taught me, this non-dual open awareness state. And I couldn't maintain it for long. After about 10 minutes of trying to work with it, it, I I just couldn't do it anymore. But a year later, he was back for a 10-day retreat, and that's all we did was Rigpa practice. So I would, after breakfast, while there was, I, I guess I had a, a job that was later in the day. So after breakfast, I would go to the meditation hall and run my jhanas. And then all the rest of the time, it was Rigpa practice. And so it was hour-long sits and hour-long walk. And, and the walking, we were to be in this open awareness, non-dual state. And it was really profound, Uh What I found over the years of doing it was that while I was in the state, it wasn't like I got any insights. The state itself was was so non-conceptual that I wouldn't get an insight while in the state. Things were too quiet. But when I came out, if I, I would remain mindful, and really pay attention to what's going on, whether it was walking or eating or anything, then the insights would come. And there was a real flood of insights, some during that retreat, but over the next several years, quite a lot. And I would say that since that time, the number one insight practice I do when I'm on retreat for myself is Rigpa practice. That, uh, It just seems to be something that leads me to a state available. I have done plenty of other practices, contemplations, body scan, uh, so forth. But the one that probably winds up being 50 to 60 percent of the time is the Rigpa practice. So it sounds to me like you're using the Rigpa practice almost as a ninth jhana in a sense that you're going through the jhanas going into the Rigpa practice, that state. And then from there, when you come out of that, you're paying close attention to your experience and doing, I suppose, more uh, standard insight practice. Uh, is that is that correct? Is it, is it you're using it a little bit like a ninth jhana? Yeah, although I would strongly be opposed to calling it a ninth jhana. So the jhanas are very, very focused, really, really tight. And... The Rigpa practice is completely open, and the jhanas have a specific object, and it's definitely dualistic. There's an observer as Rigpa practice is completely open. Uh, When it's done properly, it's non-dual. There's no observer. Uh, There's there's no subject-object happening there. But I would say that it's a practice I do post-jhana that's very different that leaves me open for insight. So I I wouldn't want to call it a jhana. And although this is a somewhat non-distracted state, it's it's so different that I just wouldn't want to put the word jhana on it. 
there's enough confusion about the jhanas. On my website, I have a list of 38 different states that go by the name jhana. So I don't want to throw this one in. Right. Then to be more precise, you're using it in a similar way that you use the eight jhanas, which is as a warm-up to insight practice. Yes, but the Ripa practice itself is insightful. While I'm in that state, I can't talk about what I'm experiencing. I can only talk about it to myself or to anyone else when I come out of it. But the the view of the world is enough different <clears throat> and enough exquisitely accurate. Whereas when I'm in the jhanas, there's not much insight available. It's so constricted, so very tight that I, I there's no room for much insight other than, okay, so there are a few insights that do come along with learning each of the jhanas. But the, the insights from the jhanas are quite limited, whereas the insight from resting in the state of Rigpa are so broad and profound. And it's, it's an experience that is not caught up in our usual conceptualizing. So it has much more of an insight quality. In fact, if you were to ask me what I, it, to summarize what I felt was the essence of the Buddha's practice, uh, I would say, don't get fooled by your concepts. And I can point you to lots of suttas where he's saying that, but I got there by hanging out in the Rigpa state and watching the mind fall into conceptualizing, conceptualizing, getting a deeper understanding of how we conceptualize. I've heard you make some comparisons between the the piti of jhana and the chandali of tumo practices and so on. Uh, is that something you ever looked at with him? Is that something that's ever particularly interested you? Or do you have any uh, opinions about how they the two might relate? Uh, basically, it's not something I discussed with him. I do find it slightly interesting. I have no idea how it relates. The one thing I would say is that in talking with some two people who know about Tumo practice, one who I'm certain was quite skilled at it, they said, yeah, it's very much PT. You're just using it to generate heat rather than to basically, for the sutta jhanas, generate sukha. So you can move on to the other jhanas. And it's the same as kundalini, where, again, the, the energy is being used differently. So the, the energetic release seems to be the same thing. And from my, shall we say, uneducated neuroscience perspective, it appears to me to be dopamine breaking down into norepinephrine. Norepinephrine will give you most of the symptoms you get with PT, the shaking, the heat, whatever comes along there. And we do know that dopamine breaks down into norepinephrine. And we also know that in the early jhanas, the nucleus accumbens, the reward center in the center of the brain, is very active. And that's associated with uh, dopamine. And so I'm guessing there's a big hit of dopamine that shows up, breaks down into norepinephrine, and that's what your PT experience is. And that experience can be triggered in such a way that it leads to heat for tumor practice, to sukha, 
for Sutta Jhana practice and for, well, whatever they're doing with Kundalini practice, which I know very little about. As you say that, I'm curious, why are you certain that at least one of those Tuma practitioners was very experienced and competent? Okay, so I met him on a four-month retreat with the Venerable Pau Auk, who is a Jhana master from southern Burma who teaches the Sudhimaga Jhanas. And of the, there were 30 people, say, on the retreat, and about five of them were previous students of Palox who were already practicing his jhanas. So of the 25 of us who were trying to learn his jhanas, this person was the most successful. And we, as integration at the end of the four months, had times where we met together and talked. And then just talking with him, I got the sense that this guy was the deepest practitioner on the retreat. He was, he had a, a very serious background, primarily in Tibetan practice. And just in talking with him, I got a sense that, yeah, when he talks about Tumo practice, he's talking about practices that he has done multiple times. So uh, just the way he talked about his practice in general, the way he talked about his experiences with Tawarp's jhanas, and the way he talked about his Tumo practice really gave me the sense that, yeah, he knows what he's talking about from personal experience. Do you know who his teacher was? No, I don't remember. that. I think he probably had studied with several different teachers. But I don't remember. Fascinating, yeah. So I think it's about time we start to define these jhanas and, and dive a little bit more into them. I th- you're best known on the international stage as the author of Right Concentration, a practical guide to the jhanas, which I have here. It's a really, it's a really fantastic book and very popular. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And there you define the jhanas as eight altered states of consciousness brought on via concentration, and each yielding a deeper state of concentration than the previous. And I think probably by now people can begin to piece together some of what the jhanas are from what you said. But for the sake of completeness, can you tell us a bit about the jhanas and in your view what they're for and how they're practiced? Right. So basically what you read out is that's what they are. They're altered states of consciousness. You do need a level of concentration to be able to access the first of these. The term access concentration doesn't appear in the suttas. It shows up in the commentaries, but it's a very good term to use to describe uh, a sort of basic level of concentration necessary for accessing them. There are a number of methods that can be used to generate access concentration, mindfulness of breathing, the body scan, uh, loving kindness meditation, a mantra. Uh, there's listening to the nada sound, which is basically the, uh, the, the noise in your hearing system. Uh, any of these can be used to generate access concentration. Then the idea is to move from the access concentration into the first of these jhanic states. The trick that I teach students is to get to access concentration, which we could define as being fully with the object of meditation, such as the breath. And if there are thoughts, they're wispy in the background, not pulling you into distraction. So a state of non-distraction. And then shift your attention to something pleasant, preferably a pleasant physical sensation, and just focus on enjoying the pleasant. If you can do that, you'll set up a positive feedback loop of pleasure which will eventually erupt into piti and sukha. Rapture and happiness is the usual translation. I would 
Shanti as glee and Sukha as joy or happiness. So the first of the jhanas is the eruption of glee and joy happiness that is sustained and you can sustain your attention on it. So it becomes a stable state. Uh, state is probably not that useful for enhancing your insight practice because it's, uh, well, it's a little too much energy. You're, you're running a lot of physical energy. It can make you sit up very straight, uh, make you vibrate, can show up as heat. But because the PT brings the sukha with it, it's possible to take a nice deep breath and calm the PT and focus on the sukha, the joy, happiness. That'll take you towards the second jhana, which is a state where the background thinking that was there in access concentration and the first jhana has gotten much quieter, and it's it's described as having inner tranquility and unification. And so now your mind is unified around more the emotional experience than the physical, which is in the background now, and it's a much calmer state. It's possible to calm that further to the third jhana where the physical is completely gone. The PT is no more there and the joy happiness has been transformed into content. So now you're just contented and focused on the emotional state of contentment and then calm it even further so that the pleasure of the contentment goes away and you're in a state of quiet stillness. No pleasure, no pain, very equanimous, emotionally neutral. By moving through those four states, you have as a side effect, one, usual conceiving of a self. You can't, you can't have your self-conception running loose and be in the jhanas. Uh, you've gotten your mind narrowed down to this very specific, subtle state. And so now you've arrived at a state of indistractability and are viewing the world from a less egocentric. And so this is the state in which you can do any insight practice better, whether it be standard vipassana, whatever that means to you, or uh, Tibetan Dzogchen practice or a body scan or, you know, pretty much anything. So these jhanas are basically a warm up for doing your insight practice. So that's the four jhanas. There are four additional states, often called the higher jhanas. And they generate even more concentration. They have names. Usually the fifth one is called the sphere of infinite space. Uh, I would call it more a realm of limitless space or the experience of limitless space. And then there's the experience of limitless consciousness the experience of nothingness and the experience of neither perception nor non-perception. Uh, each of these states is more subtle. For all of them, there's no background awareness of the body. Your mind has become so refined and concentrated on these subtle states, you have no more body awareness. Uh, and each of them is progressively more subtle, getting you more and more concentrated. They seem to take the concept of the fourth jhana and just refine it more and more as you move through them. Now, it's important to remember that these are just the names of the states. They're a description of what it, 
experience feels like. I would not say that in the fifth jhana you're tapping into any ontologically existent infinite space or the sixth, any ontologically existent infinite consciousness or anything like that. It's just that that's what it seems like when you're in these states. They are almost in a sense visualizations, but they have a quality that's different from your usual visualization in that they're more stable. And the purpose of these jhanas is the one insight. The Buddha says that coming out of the fourth jhana, you have a mind that's concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, which you can direct and incline to knowing and seeing. So basically get your mind well concentrated and then start your insight practice. There are many different ways to skin a cat that are, well, that's not a very Buddhist metaphor, is it? <laughs> there are many approaches that are put forth in terms of uh, you know, achieving insights of all these various kinds. And you, you've you listed a, a couple there. Some people say, go straight to the insight practice and you'll build up the concentration as you go. And there's another general uh, approach which says, build up the concentration first through jhanas or through uh, perhaps a shamatha route and then dive into the insight. But you're also making another distinction there. You could learn and practice the jhanas one through four and then switch into an insight practice. Or from what you've been saying about your own practice and from what you learned there with Ayakema, you're going one to eight and then switching into insight practice. So can you talk a bit about the difference between going one to four and one to eight? Uh, what considerations people should have if they're thinking about that? Yeah, the one, the one to four is, seems to be sufficient. You read the suttas and particularly the suttas on the gradual training, like the second one in the long discourses. That's what's talked about as one to four. But five to eight seems to be an optional, additional deepening of concentration. And so the jump from four to five is the most difficult transition of all. It's more difficult than zero to one. So for some people, it turns out to be quite easy. Uh, and if you can make the jump from four to five, you probably can easily get to six and seven and probably eight. So if you have the concentration skill and can do that, by all means do that. They will enhance your concentration even more. But not everybody finds the jump from four to five doable. But if you can get to four or even to three, uh, that's going to really enhance your, your insight practice that you do post-jhana. So it's really a matter of, okay, do you have a skill for doing this? If you do, let's take advantage of that skill and deepen your concentration even more. If not, let's work with whatever you've got. You know, when you say the word skill, that makes me think of uh – the word talent. Some people just seem to have certain knacks or proclivities in certain directions. And I'm, I'm curious, in your experience, you've taught many, many students. From what I hear, different people find the jhanas more or less natural, or it comes to them more or less easily. Uh, if someone's made a reasonable effort at the jhanas, is there a point at which someone should say, this is just not my thing. And what and have you have you noticed that happening with some students? And what would you consider to be a reasonable effort? What lengths would someone have to exhaust for you to say, mm, probably just stick to one to four, or mm, maybe even one, two, and three aren't aren't even going to happen for you? Is do you see what I'm saying with this question? So when I teach a retreat, 
the most important part is the interviews. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, I enjoy doing the talks and so forth, but the most important part is one-on-one interview. And so I'm trying to get a sense of how it's working for a person. So to someone gets one, two, three, four, that's probably used up the first retreat. Okay. Unless it's a month long retreat, but you know, 10 days, two weeks. Yeah. If you get to four in that amount of time, you're doing really good. It might even take two retreats just to get to four. So basically you're coming into a retreat already knowing four jhanas and you want to try and get to the fifth one and you spend 10 days to two weeks and you never get there. It's like, yeah, probably not going to happen. You could come on a month long retreat. Maybe it'll happen there. The month long retreat will be good for you. Maybe you'll get the fifth jhana on that month long, but don't come in to get the fifth jhana, come in to get the insight. Right. And that would be the advice I would give. Now, I certainly have had people come in to get the fifth jhana and, you know, three weeks in, they finally got the fifth jhana. So, um, you know, it, it varies. I've had students who were really quite good with the first four and never got to the fifth jhana. If you know all four jhanas and you come on a future one-month retreat and don't get to the fifth jhana, it's probably not going to happen. If you know all four jhanas, you come on a 10-day, two-week retreat, don't get to the fifth jhana. The odds are probably it's not going to happen, but it might happen on a month-long retreat. Okay, so, all right. Now, you come on a retreat and you don't experience any jhanas, it may be that what what is happening is you need to unlearn what you were doing before. The people that have the most trouble learning the jhanas are people who have been doing the Mahasi noting practice for a long time. They have trained their mind to note everything that's going on. That's exactly what you cannot do to get into the jhanas. Every time you note, you just knock yourself away from just experiencing. I have had multiple people come on a 10-day retreat, 10 years of practice with Mahasi, never got anywhere near a jhana, come on a month-long retreat, third week, suddenly they're in the first jhana, Suddenly they're in the fourth jhana. I mean, it, it just opens up and they're like, yeah, I used to do this all the time. In other words, they, it took them quite a lot of time to unlearn what they had been doing. And then suddenly they're very good at the jhanas. And this has happened multiple times. I've had other students come on a couple of 10-day, two-week retreats, come on two month-long retreats and still not get to the jhanas. I've also had a student who came on two month-longs, two two-week retreats, and then moved away, didn't come on any retreats for quite some time, changed jobs, had a completely different life, came on a 10-day retreat, and got to the jhanas. So there's so many variables going on. This particular person was an office manager, and his life was full of multitasking. Uh, and when he came on the retreat to go from multitasking to single-pointed focus was just not something he could pull off even in a month long. He switched, had a different job where he was teaching piano, so working one-on-one -on -one with people. When he came on his next retreat, yeah, no problem getting to the jhanas. So <laughs> you never know exactly how it's going to play out.
so I would really need to know the person, know what their background is, uh, get a sense for how it's going for them. Uh, most everybody can get to access concentration. So why aren't they getting to the first jhana? Is it because they're doing Mahasi practice? Is it they don't have any joy in their life? Okay, in that case, they need to go back and actually find more joy in their life. Get the neurological pathways associated with PT and Sukha exercised more. Uh, is the reason they're not getting to the jhana the fact that unresolved childhood stuff is coming up? This is so common that at the start of every retreat, uh, I issue two warnings. The first warning, don't have any expectations. Expectations are the worst thing you could bring on any retreat. But they're particularly going to get in the way on a jhana retreat. And two, if you start fooling with concentration and you have unresolved psychological stuff, it may show up. Uh, and since, well, probably somewhere north of 95% of people have unresolved psychological stuff, it happens quite frequently. And it may be that it's something that comes up that's so powerful that, yeah, you're honest, but... Maybe you do a lot of really good work on it. I would say for half the retreats I've taught, if I had to pick the person that had the best retreat, the most profound retreat, it's not someone who learned any jhanas. It's someone who dealt with some of their stuff that came up in a really profound way. So I'd need to know if someone wasn't getting into the jhanas, I'd need to know, okay, what what's the block? Can I even determine the block? Is it uh, years of practice? something else is it uh no joy in their life is there unresolved stuff coming up and what can they do to work with this maybe it's just practicing the jhana instructions more maybe it's getting more joy in their life maybe it's some psychotherapy yeah so there's no pat answer for any one person the one thing i i will say is that I have lots of students come in and say, I don't know what I'm doing on a jhana retreat. I don't have very good concentration. That's the first interview. Second interview, they got to the first jhana. Third interview, they got to the third jhana. You know, I would say that uh, 75% of the students estimate that their concentration ability is in the bottom 25%. Yeah, we, we just completely underestimate how good our concentration skills are in relation to being able to enter the jhanas. Why do you think people are so underestimating their concentration in that way? What metrics are they tracking that are giving them that, uh, that reading? What metric do they use to wind up with that reading? The metric is very simple. I can't stop thinking. They think concentration means when I concentrate, I won't think. And so I can't stop thinking. So obviously I have very poor concentration. But it may be true you can't stop thinking, but you may be able to get the thinking quiet enough so you don't become distracted. You'll notice in the book I define Mahdi as indistractability rather than concentration. Uh, it's the indistractability that we're after, and people don't have any idea about their indistractability because they use the word concentration, and indistractability is a word I made up. So um, that's part of why they, you know, they think of concentration. I put my mind on something, and I never get distracted. I don't think or anything else. Uh, 
yeah, that's, that's, yeah, most people can't do that. Uh, uh, but they can become well enough indistractable to get to the jhanas. And by well enough indistractable, you mean they're able to stay with their object of meditation and not be pulled away by the other things that are going on, so to say, out of the corner of their of their eyes, sensorially speaking. They're aware things are going on, but it doesn't cause them to break contact with the object, whether that's the breath or whatever else. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. And the thing that's going on is the background thinking. That's the key. Yeah. You're also mentioning other factors there, uh, lifestyle, for instance. And, and I'm wondering what you've noticed in terms of things like health uh, and, and lifestyle. Some, something that I'm curious about, actually, that I've observed in, in people whose meditation practice really deepens, I've observed it in some, is they start to make different life choices. I'm thinking of two or three people uh, that I'm aware of right now who are seriously considering celibacy as an example. And it seems to be somehow related, they think, they report, to their meditation. And, uh, you know, certainly celibacy or at least energy retention, retaining the sexual energies or uh, fluids and so on, is recommended in some traditions or mentioned in some traditions as a means to increasing meditative power. So I suppose I'm asking two questions there. Number one, health and lifestyle factors, which you've already touched on a bit, and also this idea of uh, energy retention, if that's something you've ever uh, considered or uh, have any thoughts on. Okay, so lifestyle does definitely matter. If, if you come in to a retreat and you're exhausted from doing more than you can possibly do and uh, you're worried about a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to have a good retreat. It's, it's, if you've come in, you're retired, got a really good daily practice, you don't have much going on, your life is going very well, yeah, you're going to have a good retreat. Most people fall somewhere in between those two. So, yeah, lifestyle is very definitely something that helps. What you want is one that doesn't have a lot of pressure, uh, stress-free as much as possible, which is, of course, crazy to say in 21st Western civilization, 21st century Western civilization. But so uh, as little stress as possible, not too many responsibilities, uh, it helps to be in, in good health where you're not dealing with your, your body so that you can just, you know, set your body down and forget about it. Uh, but also one of the deepest practitioners I know, uh, yeah, she has very serious health issues, so much so that she's disabled. But because she's disabled, she takes the time to meditate. So she has this incredible home practice. So, yeah, uh, poor health. If it affects your ability to forget about your body uh, is going to be a problem. But if it's poor health and you can just, you know, leave it in the background like this student can, uh, yeah, then it's not so much of a big deal. As for sexuality, I would say that I have not noticed that whether a person is sexually active or not really plays into their ability with the jhanas. Uh, clearly, if you're on a retreat, you're not sexually active, so you need to be able to set it aside. Uh, and, you know, all of the retreats that I teach, we're operating. But lots of people come in to the retreats. They've had very active sex lives before coming in. They learn the jhanas. They go home. They go back to their active sex life. They still are able to access the jhanas at home. They still gain insights while they're at home. I mean, 
it may have some effect, but it hasn't been something that I've noticed uh, to be really all that profound. Having said that, though, if someone feels that being celibate would be an advantage, then by all means, go be celibate. It's probably an advantage. Uh, in other words, I can see where it can be useful. It certainly simplifies your life if you're in a relationship. Well, relationships are definitely places that are going to bring in more stuff going on. Uh, I mean, we all know what relationships are like. If you don't have that, it's your life is simpler. And so it might be beneficial for your meditation practice. But I don't see it as a necessity or even a, a big deal. Mm. So for you, celibacy is mainly relevant in that it's potentially less complicated than being in a relationship. But other than that, its its benefits to jhana practice or meditation don't figure very, very prominently. If you're out spending your energy trying to get laid, then, yeah, if you're out spending your energy trying to do anything, then it can interfere. And certainly sexual energy is, is something we can spend a lot of energy trying to, to manifest what we want there. Uh, but it's just another distraction. And retaining, I don't think it's going to have that big a, a, a deal. I say this, and I can't say that for myself, I mean, there have been times when I've been celibate just simply because I wasn't in a relationship or I was doing a lot of practice or whatever. Uh, and I can't say it made much difference with the times where I was in a relationship and was being sexual and I still had good practice. You've mentioned that the jhanas are both the result of and a means to achieving powerful states and of concentration and concentration abilities. And one of the byproducts that's said to come from such deep states of concentration is siddhis or special abilities. That's something that's listed in the suttas and other places. And the list is quite remarkable, actually. Reading minds, walking through walls, you know, being in two places at once, things like that. Have you ever witnessed cities in this context, either personally in your teachers or your students? I, I do walk through walls. I use a trick called a door. I have walked on water in Sweden in December. Water was just as solid as it could be, you know. So, uh, okay. So let, let's take a look at the cities. All right, there are six of them given. The first one is the mind-made body. So from this body, one creates another body complete in all its faculties. Everybody understands that? No, of course not. Right? The second one is the supernormal powers. Being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one. Appearing and disappearing at will, walking on water as though it is earth, diving into earth as though it is water, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying cross-legged through the sky as though one is a bird, wielding mastery over the body as far as the Brahma realms. Okay, so I have a background in physics, and I'm a little leery of all of that. I was talking with one of my students, a friend in Portugal, and he was it is very much into lucid dreaming. And we were talking about lucid dreaming, and he mentioned a technique called the wake-induced lucid dreaming, LD. And, of course, I looked it up on the Internet. And the wild technique is basically going from a state of being awake into a lucid dream. You don't have to fall asleep, 
have a dream, recognize you're having a dream and become lucid. You intend to go from a wake state directly into a lucid dream. And I read what it takes to get there. And it's very much what it takes to what what you have coming out of John number four. And of course, the supernormal powers show up after that. So I'm going to say that creating a mind made body is learning to lucid dream. And you can do out of body experiences with that, of course. But you could also walk on water, fly through the air, dive into the earth and all the rest of the stuff. So I'm going to claim the first two of the six cities are learning to lucid dream with the wild technique and lucid dreaming so that you have all of these wonderful things. Now, you might be going, but 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 it says in the suttas, well, there's two suttas I would point you to. One is Dikkanikaya number 11, where the Buddha is very definitely opposed to shows of doing this. And the other is uh, a not well-known sutta in the Ayanguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. And in there, he's having a discussion with a Brahmin, and the Brahmin says these only benefit, they're talking about, sorry, he's having a discussion with the Brahmin, and there are three miracles. And the Buddha agrees there are only three, and the Buddha says, but these only benefit the one who does the supernormal powers, and the mind read only benefits the one who does them. The third miracle, the miracle of instruction, actually benefits others, and this is what the Buddha points out. The benefiting uh, only the one who does them sounds like they're private experiences, like you would experience in a lucid dream. Okay, so now the next two are knowing the minds of others and hearing sounds at a great distance. That's ESP. Science says it can't detect it. But when I use the phrase extrasensory perception, ESP, mind reading, you know what I'm talking about. All right. And certainly people claim to have had these experiences and so forth. So whatever ESP is, whether it's people just not doing probability correct or it actually exists and science can't detect it or wishful thinking, who knows? But whatever it is, I have had experience that practicing jhanas does enhance that. I have had experiences that it's easier to say, yeah, I read somebody's mind uh, than to explain it any other way. I'll give you an example. I'm on a retreat. We don't ever have dessert on this retreat. There's no sweets after any meal. And I leave lunch one day and I'm walking back to my room and I know we're having chocolate after the evening meal. Why do I know this? And I go that night and there's chocolate. So I had the city of foreknowledge of chocolate. Well, it turned out it was somebody's birthday and the person whose birthday it was brought chocolate. She wanted chocolate on her birthday. So she brought it for everybody. So we would say it was ESP that somehow I picked it out of her brain. Right. And that's how I knew it. Or was it just something random or did I see her unloading chocolate from her car when she arrived and didn't remember it or who knows what's going on, but whatever it is, 
it's enhanced by good concentration. I brought this up to Aya Kama and she laughed and she noticed, she said, yeah, we all noticed that's happening. Now she was saying ESP was indeed reading people's mind. I say, I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is, it's enhanced by good concentration. And then the last two of those cities, remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. I like Stephen Batchelor's take on this. He writes about this in his book, After Buddhism. Uh, it's toward the end. Basically, he says that for the Buddha to take his understanding of karma the fact that actions have consequences and make it the most profound spiritual teaching in a culture steeped in reincarnation. The best way to do that was to point it out in terms of reincarnation. And so when the Buddha is saying he remembered his past lives, he saw beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. It's a teaching that we don't need to take literally. It's a teaching that we need to understand the huge impact of our actions and what those consequences can be. And that there are impacts from earlier in our lives. There are impacts from previous lives as our own, since actually the Buddha is teaching nothing we can claim as our own. But there are impacts from previous actions that impact on us and that everybody reaps what they sow. And so the last two, I would say, are not per se supernormal powers, but are teachings that uh, understandings, insights that we are to have of the profound impact of karma on our lives and everyone else's life. That's fascinating take. There it seems you're echoing a little bit what you said earlier, the difference between your subjective experience of something and its ontological status. Right. Yeah. What what do you think, of, maybe you don't have an opinion about this, but what do you think about people who report teachers like Deepa Ma uh, or 16th Karmapa, people like that, who are said to have been very fluent in the cities and, 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 and indeed demonstrated them from time to time to people who saw them doing things like Deepa Ma walking through a wall or something like that. Do you have a take on what's going on there? I don't have a solid take. I will say that most of what I've heard of that isn't secondhand. It's usually thirdhand or fourthhand. All right. So I don't know who was reporting it. What was their agenda for the first report? And, you know, all the reports till it got to me. I don't know. I just have to leave it in the I don't know. Um, I, at one point, I was going to create a website with the enlightenment test, and it was going to have 40 questions. And the correct answer to 20 of the questions was, I don't know. It was multiple choice, you know. Uh, Bin Laden spent the year 2002 primarily in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, all of the above, none of the above, I don't know. Well, the correct answer is, I don't know. You could guess that he was in Pakistan or Afghanistan or wherever, but you don't really know. And so, but most people are not comfortable with, I don't know. And so the enlightenment test was going to be 40 questions and all that mattered were the 20 where you answered, I don't know. Um, so yeah, getting comfortable with, I don't know. So these people claim that they saw or they heard somebody tell them they saw or they heard somebody 
Yeah, and I think it's certainly fair to say that stories of your deceased teacher's supernatural abilities can have the effect of conferring upon the surviving students a degree of authority and uh, primacy, I think. So I'm not suggesting that's why everyone does it, but it's it seems to have that effect, intended or not. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. So there's this story about this Tibetan man who learned to meditate, and his teacher sent him off to practice, and he practiced for 20 years, and he learned to walk on water, which was cool because it was a shortcut to town when he went on alms round. And his teacher comes to visit him and says, well, what have you learned? And he walks across the river and walks back, and his teacher goes, my God, you wasted 20 years of your life. There's a bridge a quarter mile upstream. I think we're coming near to the end of our uh, of our conversation. It's been so fascinating, and I, you know, a lot of this you go you go into much more detail and uh, practical instructions and so on in your book, Right Concentration. And you know, I will say that the first half of that book is actually the practical instructions, and the second half is a deep dive into uh, the, the the Pali uh, canon and and sort of looking at more detail from that point of view. So it's really an excellent handbook, I think, for people who are interested in exploring the things you've been talking about. Before we go, you know, I'm curious if there is a frontier in your own practice at this point, or what is what is really uh, exciting you or standing out to you at this point in your practice and from your current perspective? So the place I'm working the deepest these days when I intentionally work in an area is the don't be fooled by your concepts. So really studying and looking at how conceptualization, why it happens like it happens, why do we come up with the concepts that we have, uh, how do we get fooled by them, how can we conceptualize and not be fooled by it, because obviously we do have to conceptualize, we can't navigate the environment without. So uh, I would say that the edge of my practice right now is the study of conceptualization. Uh, which is actually the word I want to use to translate sanya. Sanya is usually translated as perception, right? But I want to translate it as conceptualization or conceptualizing. So that's where I'm intentionally looking, but I'm, I'm open to anything showing up. On a retreat I taught, oh, this is back in around 2003 or four, maybe five, I can't remember. Um, I was reading a book by Brian Greene, and I realized that time is just a concept. It's a thing we make up. It has no basis. It has no ontological basis. What's really there is change, and we attempt to measure it. And so there is just change, and because it's regular, we can measure it, and we invent time. And this explains why uh, you can't go back to the past. There is no time. There's only change, and things don't unchange, right? This is why it only goes into the forward. Things change, right? And so it was like, great, all right. So that's time. What about the other three dimensions? And so in playing with that, you know, time is a concept. So is space a concept in the same way? And I, I've worked on this for all those years since then. So we're talking you know, 15 years of trying to find, okay, well, how do we conceptualize space? What are we doing there? And finally, on a retreat uh, I was teaching last winter, I'm doing my practice, and I come to the understanding that space is, again, a concept, and it, it arises through 
duality, right? If, if there's no subject object, there's not any space. It's only when I make a distinction between objects. There's the most important object, which I call me, the subject, and the other objects. But even if I make a distinction between two objects, that's where the space comes in. So can I step out of subject-object duality and experience the world outside of both space and time? Okay, and that's that's a good bit trickier to play with. But that's, again, something I'm working with. I can do it a bit. Uh, basically by playing with the instructions the Buddha gave to Bahia of the bark cloth in seeing, let there only be seeing, hearing, only hearing, and sensing, sensing, and cognizing, only cognizing. And so all of this is conceptualizing and trying to play with that and see what insights that will bring to me. So the three dimensions are, again, something we're laying on top of reality through our objectify. Now, I'm not saying that the ontologically existent universe mentions. I'm saying that our concept of space is something we're putting on top of it. Uh, I don't know exactly what's going on in the uh, ontologically existent universe. Uh, all I know is my experience of the ontologically existent universe. And, uh, I, I know I'm not making up in my head I know this because I know I'm not crazy enough to be coming up with rapidity that's happening in this country these days, in the world these days. I, I'm just not that sick. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what all is really going on out there. What I do know is I'm projecting concepts on top of it. What can I learn by watching how I conceptualize the world? And what can you learn? You said you're able to step out of the, that time and space, you're able to do it a bit, I think is what you said. What is the outcome of that exploration? So the time one has been very helpful. If time is an illusion, okay, and the self is an illusion, and I can step outside of time, but I have to work real hard to get there, and I keep falling back in, and the self is a whole lot more <laughs> persistent illusion, it gives me some idea of working with the illusion of self by working with the illusion of time and seeing the difficulties there. Space is an even more difficult illusion to step outside of than time, all right? And I try and work with that, and I have much less skill at stepping out of that. I can do it a little bit, you know, step into just the seeing and uh, uh, not get caught up and webbing and so forth. So it's, it's interesting in that way in that it gives me some insight into the difficulties of stepping outside of self and how a mind just immediately gloms into these familiar concepts that we have. Also, by paying attention to concepts, when I get lost in wanting something and can see the concept around what I'm wanting, and perhaps that helps me relax away from the wanting or I'm averse to something and again the concept around what I'm averse to uh, I, I hardened it into this evil thing and start missing the bigger picture of what's going on or something like that so it, it gives me a, a, a broader perspective in relating to the world Lee, this has been a really uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for this time. Uh, I'll link to your website in the show notes, and I'll also put a link to your book, Right Concentration. Uh, did I hear correctly that you're, you're also writing a book on dependent origination? 
Uh, writing is perhaps a little bit ambitious or optimistic. Yeah, I just haven't done anything on it lately. But it would be great if I could get it out there and, and talk about my understanding of dependent origination. Because I think that's the most important part of what the Buddha was teaching. Why do you think that? Again, it leads us to getting beyond our conceptual world. It's the method that, that basically took me to the point where I started working deeply with conceptualizing. Uh, to see the world not in terms of things, but in terms of processes, which is what dependent origination is in a sense, points to. The 12 links is an example, but it's not the deepest teaching. The deepest teaching, this, that, conditionality. This arises dependent on that. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. Uh, and noticing how everything arises dependent on other things. And noticing that I'm taking processes and hardening them in time into a noun when it's actually just a bunch of verbs. Uh, and to, to step back from the noun view of world, step more into the verb view of world, and then to step back even further, not the universe is unfolding. You don't need the word the universe. There's just unfolding and seeing, okay, that's what's really going on, but it's too big for my little pea brain to take in. So in order to deal with it, I have to break it up into bits and pieces that are manipulable. Right. And in so doing, I come up with nouns, which maybe don't give a clear picture of what's going on. So can I step beyond the concepts? So seeing the dependently arisen nature of the universe, seeing it as verbs rather than nouns is what's led me to this investigation of conceptualizing. And are you coming at that from a Theravada point of view or Nagarjuna, Madhyamaka Karta kind of point of view? Yeah, it's some of both which I don't think is a contradiction to say some of both. Uh, the one sutta that the Nagarjuna mentions in the Mulayamaka Karika by name is the Kachyanagota Sutta, which is uh, Connected Discourses 1215, uh, SN 1215. Uh, on my website, I have... Uh, a page for that sutta of, I think it's five or six translations side by side, along with the Pali. I think it's the most profound sutta in the whole of the Pali canon. And what it's saying is basically what Nagarjuna elaborated on. In other words, I could make the, the shall we say, stretched argument that uh, the Mulamayamaka Karika is a commentary on uh Samyutta 1215, uh, that it's all right there, that the Buddha is saying, don't think in terms of existence, don't think in terms of non-existence. See the world as nothing but a bunch of dependently originated phenomena. If you can do that enough, then you stop that tendency to grasp and cling onto, well, nouns, because they aren't any nouns. Lee, thank you very much. My pleasure. I have been, totally enjoyed talking Dharma with you. This is great. 